Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Thank you for tuning in. Today, Dr. Abdullah Rothman is joining me once again to discuss Islam and psychology. Recognize Allah and to understand Allah's relationship to the process of healing and to the overall trajectory of the person's existence. He had one of the uh, top five episodes in 2018. It was called Spiritual Quest. So he shares with us some examples from his work as well as principles that all believers can apply, whether Muslim or otherwise. The principles are the same if you believe or trust and are secure in the evidence that there is a creator. This creator has to be central to your consciousness and your actions in this life. Now we're going to jump right into when Dr. Abdullah breaks down the association that he has been a part of for several years. Abdullah? This project, it's called the International Association of Islamic Psychology. And ironically, I think you in one of your previous podcasts had mentioned, um, you know, would there be this time once in the future where there might be uh, an association, just like there is the um, the American Psychology Association. And so, yes, that time is here. MashaAllah. It's based around uh, four areas of focus. Um, education, certification, publication, and research. And um, so people would be able to join as members to the association and have access to sort of everything that's going on in the development of the field. And the idea is much like the American Psychology Association is that it's this uh, sort of umbrella for um, sort of regulating the, the standards of practice of the field of Islamic psychology and um, advancing the development of the field, especially in this case where it's, it's such an emerging and developing field. It's really about helping to advance this in a, in a professional manner. MashaAllah, that's phenomenal news. I'm very excited to hear about that. Malik Bedri was one of the first individuals that, to my knowledge, translated some of the works of Ilm al-Nafs or traditional Islamic psychology into English. And uh, you can look him up and, and find several of his um, books and articles, as well as others like Dr. Amber Haq, um, and so on and so forth. So if you're if you're interested in the field, you're interested in the, these two subject matters, definitely check out some of those individuals and their work, inshallah. The idea is to take on that legacy of those pioneers in the field and, you know, um, sort of canonize that legacy and move it forward into the next generation. There's so many young and upcoming people in this field. And so the, the real goal is to bring everybody together. And one more thing, the... Um, That'll be $5. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hear you heard it here first on coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so the the we're launching the website soon, maybe even by the time this is uh, aired, it will be launched and it's islamicpsychology.org. And so people can find out all about the different projects that have going on and become members of the association. So thank you for that, Abdullah. And also, I'm very excited about the topic that you and I are going to explore today because we're both very interested in this um, field. What do you think is the difference between psychology 
and Islamic psychology. I think the fundamental difference is it's about ontology. It's about the, you know, the fundamental understanding of human nature. I think when we think of psychology in terms of application and approaches, there's quite a lot that is um, applicable and similar and not necessarily at odds with. But when we talk about psychology as the understanding of the human being and the human condition, that is when it gets into, I would say, fundamentally different um, viewpoints of a, what, what, what we're even describing as a human being, what we talk about when we talk about things like the self. Um, and this is where it's really important to understand that um, an Islamic paradigm of the human condition and therefore understanding psychology is fundamentally different. And, and one, one example of that is, there's, there's, it's on several levels, but one example is um, in a conventional, I would say, Western approach to psychology, much of what we're focused on is the self. And when we, when we talk about defining the self from that context, it's mostly uh, a conglomeration of a construct of identity that is based in our lives in this, in this world. So from birth until the point where the person comes into therapy. And during that time, they have their, their memories, their experiences, their cultural uh, orientations, their um, whatever trauma they've been through, whatever upbringing they've had, whatever positive memories they've had, all these come together and construct an identity that we call the self. And and so a lot of what psychology is doing is sorting out that identity. And what, from an Islamic perspective of psychology, we're, we're talking about an identity that is, that is beyond, even from before birth and after death. And so what we're talking about is the soul. Um, and that the soul is really what our goal is in, in, in treatment in Islamic psychology and in getting the person to identify, orienting the person to this awareness and knowledge that they, in essence, are a soul and, and that their, their identity is connected to this much longer uh, trajectory than just the memories that they've formulated in this construct of who they conceive themselves to be. And so this, this you know, opens up a much wider perspective of what you're even dealing with in, in something like psychotherapy when you're talking about applied psychology because it's about the, the sort of way that we understand what the soul is you know, from an Islamic perspective and what that, um, how that interacts with our emotions and our experiences of states of being. Um, and so this is, this is what the focus is and what we're working with it, it, from that context. Right. So, so if I were to take a stab at it, Islamic psychology, you know, it takes this idea of, you know, understanding the self, development, um, mental processes, emotions, behaviors, all these types of things, what is considered health, what isn't considered healthy, what's um, functioning, what's not a functioning psyche, but it has to be encased in this ontology or this worldview that 
what essentially makes humans humans is not their body, but it's the spirit. It's the soul. And if the soul or the spirit is not being nourished or directed or reflecting its origin and its return, i.e. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, then there's always going to be a part of the human being that isn't being quote-unquote treated or acknowledged, right? So this, this of course, is a huge difference between you know secular psychology, let's just call it, and um, Islamic psychology. So Islamic psychology is about keeping the soul in its place and recognizing it is the source of the human condition and the human experience. Right. And I would say it's a it's a very holistic approach to psychology. Right. It's integral. We, you know, oftentimes we think of psychology, people think, you know, when, when you see a psychology workshop, there's this picture of a brain or something, right? <laughs> and, and oftentimes when you go and you study psychology, a lot of students, I talk to them and they're, oh, what are you studying? Like, they're studying the brain and they're studying, you know, neuropsychology, really, which is a, a sort of a different um, a different thing. What, what we talk about when we talk about, you know, when we talk about psychotherapy and really trying to get in and understand and help people grow and understand themselves, this is much for, more in the realm of philosophy than it is in science. You know, it, it is rooted in things like um, ontology and, you know, how we make sense of the nature of human beings. And so, but from a, an Islamic perspective of that human being and the soul, um, the mind is only one aspect, you know, the, the, the cognitive functioning is only one aspect of that self, that soul. And so that what that means is, you know, when we, in Western psychology, probably one of the most popular modes of therapy is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And there's, 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 there's nothing Islamically at odds with CBT. As a matter of fact, you know, there's a book that Malik Badri translated of a, um, I believe it's a ninth, ninth century scholar who essentially completely lays out what we now know as CBT. Uh, and and a, a lot of this was being drawn from Islamic knowledge. And so the idea is that that, that those most of the things that we're doing in in western psychology are great they're useful they're helpful but they're one piece of a much larger puzzle and 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 so in an islamic psychology approach we're dealing with the bigger picture and so we may use a cbt approach but we wouldn't use that as the primary uh method and and our primary goal would not necessarily only be changing the person's thoughts. That would be useful in orienting the person towards aligning the rest of the soul, so the heart and the spirit and the, um, you know, sort of lower drives of the human being and putting all these things together. So, so treatment then becomes a, more of a holistic thing. And oftentimes we're even dealing with things like uh, the body, some, some things that would normally be thought of as more like um, alternative healing, uh, like body, body work, you know. Um, but for me, when I'm doing therapy, one of the first things I do is try and orient a person towards their body because I'm trying to get away from this idea that our, our self or our identity is located in our heads or in our brains. You know, as in the West, you know, this, this idea of co cogito ergo sum, like 
I think, therefore I am, has really influenced all, sort of all of society across the world in, in that we were these sort of floating heads. Um, uh, and so it's really bringing people back down into the rest of themselves. So the, and so it's understanding the structure of the soul. Um, so a lot of people, are in, if you're familiar with Islamic uh, just theology, have heard of uh, qalb, aql, ruh, nafs. Um, but this, in, in the context of psychology, these terms are really useful in helping us understand the sort of anatomy of the soul so that we can then um, sort of devise treatment um, that targets this holistic vi um, picture of the human being rather than just the mind. Right. Now, if I were to kind of just paint a picture here, a framework for us to work with. So let's let's talk about some of these terms and how they all work together. So first thing is you have ruh. My understanding of ruh is it's like it's the spirit or it's the life force. It's the thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blew into Adam salam and into all human beings. That's what makes us alive and animated, so to speak. But in the, the ruh as its own entity, if you kind of, we picture it as this like, pure clear luminous you know thing right because we don't really know what kind of a substance it is so to speak but it's something that's luminous something that is um it knows allah and its attributes um reflect allah's divine uh, reality better than anything else and the body is the contrast of that the body is dark the body is heavy the body is material and it needs materials and so when you put this spirit into the body this now becomes the self, right? Or the nafs. And your nafs can either be more aligned with your spiritual essence, or it can be pulled down and more attached to the bodily component, right? And essentially, this is like the struggle of the human being, according to Islam, right? We're always working towards purification, transformation of our hearts, of our, you know, consciousness of our bodies to align with the divine pattern. This is the uh, one way to kind of understand an overall simplified picture of you have a spiritual essence and an earthly bodily essence. And when the two combine, you become this total self, which then generates the intellect, it generates the heart, it generates intentions and desires. But then there's this... Um, this, it's a constant project, right, within our within ourselves, and so the human is either becoming, you know, more angelic or beyond the angelic reality, because as we know in Islam, the angels are, you know, in a sense, bodies of light, right, um, and the jinn are bodies of fire, and humans are bodies of earth and water, um, and so we have these different kind of containers, but the nature of our containers as well as um, you know, how close or distant we are from the divine source uh, can determine a lot about our state of health, our state of consciousness, fulfillment, and success in this life and the next. So just kind of a simple way to, to put it all together for people that don't know what these terms mean. Do you feel like that you'd like to add more to that? Or do you feel like that's a good basic, you know, one-on-one way to kind of picture all this? Yeah, no, that's a really good picture of it. I mean, like you described, it's this. There's, there's essentially a dynamic interplay happening in the soul, and it's, it, this is where our, um, <clears throat> our will comes in, 
is we, we have this will that we can essentially direct our energy um, one way or the other, either towards the ruh and reflecting that light of Allah and becoming more of our, our true self and being aligned with fitra so we can become who we, who we really are underneath the veils and layers of sort of crust that has built up over our ruh, essentially, or over our heart and soul, so that we, this is why, you know, when I was saying people identify with the memories and the self-construct and the, the trauma and the things that have happened in this life, those can become um, crust that covers over that true self, that fitra. And so when somebody in that interplay, if, if they're not exerting their willpower to, you know, it takes, it takes effort. It's not a natural, it's not a easy thing. It's natural in the sense that I think there's a trajectory that's laid out in our lives that we're oriented towards growth and, and um, sort of coming back to this place of fitra. But there's also a very strong natural pull from our nafs, from our, from our, that's oriented towards dunya, and we forget, we're very forgetful, you know, the, 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 the root of the word insan is, is also forgetfulness, and so uh, we come into a state of ghafla, you know, of, uh, of essentially um, forgetting Allah and forgetting our fitra state. Um, and, is, and that's just if we follow sort of the impulses of what our nafs want and we go, you know, here a lot of things, and this is somewhat times problematic in Western psychology is there's this sort of sometimes feeding into the nafs of like, well, do what's good for you. You know, there's this, there's this identity, there's this notion that like you're going to be better off if you do what you want to do. And I think, you know, that comes from a place of like self-empowerment, which is great. And there's an aspect of that that is healthy. But what, when it's not in balance with this wisdom of understanding the dynamics of the soul and what the dangers are and what, what our actual goal is in healing and what healing means, then if we follow what we want, oftentimes it's not what's good for us. Um, you know, I can remember times in my life where I wasn't as on this path of really struggling and striving to to do what's, you know, align myself with my fitra. And, and I, um, I was on a path of more like, well, I'm going to do what feels right or, or what feels, oh, feeling right can, can be good sometimes, but more like what feels good, you know, what I want, what I prefer. And as much as that feels good in some ways, it always led me to a place of disappointment or dissatisfaction or, or just um, trouble. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm not the best judge of what's good for me. And so I'm a good judge of what's comfortable for me, but that's not necessarily going to lead me to my higher state. And so, um, you know, part of an Islamic approach to psychology is the, the therapist helping to be a mirror for the client in, in sort of holding up like, well, what, what do you really want here? Do you want to just go further into what you want and, and how has that worked for you? Has that worked well for you? Have you got, you know, do you feel um, like you're living your dream, you know, you're living your best self or is it causing all kinds of problems? Most of the time when we follow 
you know, somebody's difficulties in presenting problem, you can easily track back like how they got there and how it's connected to something they were following that they thought was going to be uh, good for them because it felt good. And, and ultimately, um, by understanding what those pitfalls are and those traps, um, you know, so, so like uh, Imam Ghazali talks about the muhlikat and the munjiyat, um, essentially similar to like a platonic idea of vices and virtues. And that, um, you know, we have these character traits of like jealousy and lust and envy that, you know, are natural. They're, they're totally natural parts of the human being. And so it's not to deny them um, or, to, or to shame ourselves for having them, but it's to be aware, to bring our awareness to when we start falling into these types of characters and making an effort to, with our will and our, and our self-conscious you know, awareness, to direct our energy into um, perfecting our character. So in, in, in Arabic, it's tahdib al-akhlaq, the reformation of character. And this is a, this is a very um, integral part of, of, of an Islamic approach to um, psychology, because like Ghazali pointed out in, in Ihya al-Mudin, he, he, he almost lays it out as, um, as diseases and treatments, right? So there's these diseases of the heart. So envy, when you're, when you're in this place, you're, you're, um, it's like a sickness in your heart that if you, if you allow it to, to continue, it like festers and, and will continue building this, this crust over your heart and get you in this deeper into this state of ghafla. Whereas if you uh, assert your willpower and bring your awareness to what's happening in yourself and you uh, attempt to try to uh, emulate these these character traits that are higher um, like courage and wisdom and justice you know and these are getting more into the in line with like the character uh, you know like the the asma husna the 99 names of Allah and we're reflecting that through that ruh we're reflecting Allah's light and this is how we become you know, moving up towards that trajectory of perfecting ourselves. And this is, you know, a lot of people will say, will argue like, well, you know, isn't that more of a, of a, of a higher functioning level of like perfecting the self versus, you know, people think of psychology as like, uh, well, if people have mental illness or mental health issues. And I would say that it's all about, um, you know, there's different levels of everything, and it's a and it's applicable at at every level of where a person is at. And there's different there's different approaches that are relevant to what a person is dealing with and going through at that at their stage. Psychology considers the fact that there is a creator who made the human being. Therefore, the creator who designed the human being, who nourishes, who guides, who sustains the human being and everything else in the universe, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ultimately the, the greatest psychologist, if you think about it, right? Like the approach or the theory has to be rooted in our origin and the one who created us. Because he's the one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who sets the standard of what's considered good, evil, healthy, unhealthy, functioning, non-functioning, and those don't always align with secular psychology. Although there's 
there's of course benefit and in, in crossover from that too, right? Um, and you also mentioned this other idea of, a, of the fitra. The fitra is this natural state of the human being, right? But how does that work exactly? Like we're all born on fitra. This is a common idea of, of in Islam. But if we're all born on fitra, and this means we're essentially good and we and we have a blueprint for understanding this notion of Tawheed, which is the assertion that everything is unified. God is one and unique and everything's interconnected because it's being sourced from this one creator. So the fitra is like we're all born on this good natural state, which is has a blueprint to know all of this or to be a part of all of this. But then it's the, the nurture or the environment that changes us right or can change us or misdirect us or it can nourish and establish that even further or deeper right so our developmental stages is the thing that determines you know obviously where we are and, and what how we've become what we've become which is something that secular as well as islamic psychology acknowledges so the fitra as you described it as something that gets it can get buried or kind of um you know um you know, thrown thrown behind the scenes, so to speak. And we, uh, and I kind of, when I was thinking about it while you were talking earlier, it's like, well, you know, the human body has water and earth. Earth, as we know, light can't penetrate through solid earth or solid matter. But water, but water can be penetrated by light, right? And in this case, I'm talking about the light of God, right? This idea of, um, when we feel illuminated or our spiritual side is um, reflecting this natural luminosity, um, we actually start to uh, heal ourselves or align with our ultimate purpose and the ultimate standard of what it means to be a healthy human being, according to Islam. And so when, when the earth element within us, this body part of us, also this egoic attachment to the body and all of this you know, um, all these I needs and, and wants and wishes, if, if those things that I define as what feels good or what feels right is not checked by a standard, then it's very easy to think you're fine when you're actually astray or diseased according to Islamic psychology. So, so Abdullah, let me ask you this. I mean, we, we touched a bit about the paradigm of Islamic psychology. Obviously, this is, you know, kind of a broad um, way of laying down the foundations, but maybe it'll help me and others understand how would this even work exactly. Um, so let's say I come to you, I have severe social anxiety, I bite my nails, I, you know, freak out about a lot of things like, am I going to make enough money? Am I going to find a parking spot? I'm just an anxious person, perhaps also a negative thinking person, right? Because that tends to be connected with anxiety, correct? How would you start to even work with me if I came to you and I said, look, these are my presenting problems? Yeah. So um, where I would start would depend on where I get a sense of where the, the client is at in terms of what's the most present for them. So what I mean by that is oftentimes uh, a person is so mired in the, the details of the story of what's happening to them that, and they haven't really talked about it before with anyone else, that no matter what I do, they're always going to come back to telling the details of the story. And so there's a certain, uh, sometimes I'll just start with having them tell me uh, what's happening. 
for me as a as a therapist and from working from an Islamic psychology paradigm, I don't really need much of that story to work with them. It's more for their own uh, get it out of the way to like bookmark, right? And so so sometimes that's where we'll start. But if you know from 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 a therapist standpoint. Where I would start from if a person doesn't need to talk as much about it and they're just sort of ready to get the work done, my first uh, approach would be orienting them towards their heart. Um, and this is very much what I, what I would conceive of as the fundamental aspect of an Islamic psychology approach is that it's centered in the qalb, in the heart, and that this is the locus of the human being. And like I said before, most of our experience of life is centered in our minds. We walk, you know, before the person comes in to see me, they're probably uh, the locus of their whole life has been in their mind and their thoughts. And so what I want to do is from the beginning is to sort of move them out of that head, head space, which is why I might let them tell that story first so we can, you know, so it's not, so it doesn't keep coming, cropping up. And then trying to locate all of the underlying emotional um, material that is underneath that story, underneath that cognitive construct of what they're struggling with. What I'm wanting to do is locating that material, that emotional material in their soul. And so that means, again, this is holistic. So it's in their body. Their soul is a, is a, you know, is a being in the body. And it, and, it, and, it, and it occupies the whole body. So I will orient them towards, first of all, having just an awareness of what their heart is and where their heart is located in the body. And what I mean is not necessarily the organ of the heart, but this area in the chest, sort of from shoulder to shoulder and, you know, essentially almost like where your lungs are. And because where you're, uh, that same place is where breathing happens, I'll oftentimes use breathing techniques to help them connect with their heart um, because even just the physical location is in the same place. And it helps a person settle into their body. So to settle, one of the first things you try to do is to get people into their bodies and be aware of their heart or their chest area. Um, and this is one of the ways we can do this is by taking some deep breaths and this helps reorient us into the body, correct? Okay. Are there any other ways that we can awaken or activate this organ of the heart? And you said that you're not talking so much about the physical heart, right? Then what are you talking about? Because some people, when you say heart, that's exactly what they picture. So can you tell us more about that and, and other techniques to, to activate that or get into the body, as, as you said? Uh, anytime you have a, a, a feeling, you feel some sort of activity in this place in your body that is where your chest is. So when we have, uh, you know, when you have a crush on somebody, when you're, when you're, uh, you get flutter, you get fluttering in the, in the chest area, or when you're nervous about to, to go take a test, you get, you call them butterflies. And oftentimes people even feel them like in their stomach or around in their chest area. And then also when people experience anxiety to whatever degree, you know, so in this case you had posed the situation where the person is coming because they're experiencing anxiety. 
And from almost across the board, every work patient, every client I've worked with that has had anxiety is they're experiencing con constriction in their chest, uh, right? And so oftentimes that affects the breath. So they're, they're unable to breathe. They, they, their, their breath is constricted and they feel a tension in their chest area. And, it's, and so I'm, what I'm doing is I'm helping them identify with all of those experiences they've had that are located in that part of their body and that are connected to emotional or you know feeling experiences. And uh, so like I said, whether it's anxiety or love or um, nervousness, you know, there's this activity that's happening in this locus of their being. And so by attuning them to where this material is located and where this activity is happening, it's helping them um, uh, pinpoint this this locus of their being where where we can access this this um, material, um, and that it's not it's not in the mind. You know, the mind is a processing plant or unit for making sense of or projections of that material and that emotional stuff. So. So this is this is how I would under, uh, help somebody identify with what I mean by the heart. And usually, I don't have a hard time doing that. Like just by saying those few things that I just mentioned, people are like, "Oh yeah, wow, I definitely have that experience." Um, and so then, the more that I can help them um, key into like bringing awareness and attention to like, well, what did that feel like? What what? You know, when they have, when you had that anxiety and that constriction, so they use, they identified with the word constriction. So tell me more about that, you know, and just explaining what the experience is of that constriction in their chest. Um, the more we go into talking about it, suddenly it changes from like um, pain in the chest to like, you know, they're talking about feeling statements or, you know, like. I was, I was, I was scared or I was, there's this fear under here or there's this, you know, you start to, um, uncover different layers. Um, and that's essentially what I'm trying to do is locate their experience in the soul. Um, and not in these other peripheral places where they have, um, made sense of those experiences, you know, whether it's the mind or even just sort of surface level body experiences, you know, like my shoulder hurts or my, you know, my chest feels constricted or I can't breathe, you know, it's, it's just helping them identify with those experiences and then bringing them in to locate where that is, um, in their, in their inner being, which is, you know, I'm talking about their soul. And ultimately I think is focused in the call in the heart. This area is sort of like the concentration of material happens within the soul and so then it's a matter of um once i've got them aligned or or in a place of awareness of this more holistic experience then we can start to work on what to do with um moving and changing and re re-evaluating and realigning all of that um experience and material that exists there what I heard you say was you're helping with breathing, helping with getting back into the body, identifying deeper emotions, right? So how is that Islamic compared to, let's say, this practitioner over here who's like, 
you know, just really into somatic psychology. Yeah. There may be similar approaches to, to doing that, but then it's a matter of, okay, well, then what? Where, where are we going with that? Like, where, where is the trajectory of healing? What, what is the therapeutic treatment goal? You know, so in, if you don't have an Islamic paradigm, then the therapeutic treatment goal might be feeling better or having less symptoms, right? This is also part of Islamic paradigm, but there is a fundamental reality to the goal is for the person to recognize Allah and to understand Allah's relationship to the process of healing and to the overall trajectory of the person's existence. So just getting the person to the point of like feeling good or, or understanding where the, the material of their emotional material is located is useful only to a certain degree. And then it's a matter of plugging that into a source, you know, and understanding that the goal from an Islamic perspective, the goal of life Therefore, the goal of psychology and the goal of healing is to remember Allah and to come back into this place of witnessing Allah's tawheed. You know, we, 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 in our lives, we get mired and stuck in this, under, this, this illusion or delusion that we are separate and that we're separate beings and that we have this separate trajectory that we are controlling. You know, like, so I want to become a lawyer. And so my, the reason I came to therapy is because everything is getting in the way of this happening. And this is what I want and it's not happening and I'm, it's causing anxiety. And I want you to help me get rid of the anxiety and get back on the track of becoming a lawyer, whatever it is his goal is. From an Islamic perspective, um, it's completely reorienting what the goal is. The goal is not necessarily becoming a lawyer or becoming whatever the person wants to become. It's, it's becoming who they truly are, which is a, a soul that is a reflection of Allah and that is at the mercy of Allah. And therefore, the goal for the person's life in order to be in line with fitra really should be about wanting what Allah wants for them and, and sort of being willing to let go of the the pictures and projections of what they thought they wanted in life now that doesn't mean you have to like be this bummer like tell people to give up their hopes and dreams and and to not pursue things in life you know people to have direction right but it's about understanding that being willing to let go of what they thought their direction was or what their ultimate goal was and getting in line with this this notion of like well allah knows best what for you and wanting what Allah wants is going to actually put you in a place of having more all the things that people want happiness fulfillment you know this is where you truly get it from and so these things are really really fundamentally different and it comes down to this essence of what we are in the soul from an Islamic perspective is we are servants of Allah the the thing that we're coming back to this knowledge of Allah is, is in the fitra, what we were born on in the fitra is a witnessing of Allah, that we were, you know, before birth, all of the souls said, you know, um, we, we witnessed this, you know, and so in our nature is, our nature is to be servants of Allah, 
And so if we're, if we're doing anything else other than that, um, we're going to be serving something else because we, we are by nature s slaves. So we'll be a slave of something else, if not Allah. And, though, and being a slave of anything else is going to cause different sets of problems that people then experience as presenting problems. And so it's sorting that out by, by um, plugging them into this deeper reality. Mm -hmm. no, I, I, love, I love that point, um, which is very important, this idea that part of getting back to God or reconnecting to your divine relationship essence, the, the theomorphic reality of who you are meant to be, right? Allah says he created Adam as the Khalifa, right? Or all of us humans, we're supposed to be representatives of the divine reality in this earth or in this world. And so one of the things that is very common these days is this dogma of individuality and independence. It's like, we're well, none of us are independent. You know, I, I, I'm so, I get so rubbed off, rubbed the wrong way when people are just like, oh, I'm so independent or it's all about independence. It's like, in reality, you're not independent. You're actually completely dependent and everything about you is contingent to the ultimate reality, which is Allah. So I love that example you gave of like, the ego sometimes falls into the delusion that it's in charge, it's in control, and it actually determines everything in its destiny, right? But the what you're what I'm hearing you say is this we have to melt into this greater ocean of the divine reality and recognize we're a part of it, not separate from it. And that's one way to understand perhaps this notion of tawheed. So if I see myself as a drop in the ocean, I can work, move with the ocean as well as be moved by the ocean rather than thinking I'm like this floating drop of water that has nothing to do with anything else around me kind of thing. Like, And that maybe is part of the reason why many people do feel things like anxiety or depression or what have you because they still have to break free from this um, idea that they are really individual and really independent in, this, in the dogmatic sense, right? I'm not... Exactly. And like, you know, melting, melting into the Tawheed of Allah, it doesn't have to be, you know, we think of it, it sounds like such this esoteric thing that is only about this really deep spiritual religious experience. And people want to separate that out from like, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is just, you know, mental health and dealing with life and regular life problems. Well, you know, I think people are missing the point here and they, 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 they separate these two things out and what they're not understanding. You, you're constantly, you know, sometimes you can say like, well, you know, it, these things are connected. Allah is the answer. And the, people want to come back to saying, well, but that's out there. That's that spiritual thing that is reserved for another sector of life. And then there's life, there's daily life. And, and this is where you sort of, people have to be uh, guided to bring those two things together and understand like the, the, the reason why things are out of alignment and why you're experiencing difficulty in life is because you're not prioritizing this other, um, you know, esoteric reality. And, you know, w when you uh, approach everything from this perspective of, of witnessing Allah and doing things for the sake of Allah and recognizing your dependence on Allah and not your independence, then 
the, all of those things that you're struggling with in life will sort themselves out or they get sorted out because the, 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 the reason that they existed to begin with was because you were trying to determine your own life and trying to sort out what you want to happen or when conflicts come to you, you're, you're you know, um, meeting them with more conflict and causing more um, friction rather than accepting things as being made by Allah and that you are a servant of Allah. And so then, you know, that doesn't mean conflict doesn't come to you. It means when you it comes to you, you see it as coming from Allah. You're not resisting it. You're not saying, like, I don't want this to happen. This is horrible. This shouldn't be happening. And then creating all kinds of different segments and permutations of essentially the symptom of uh, separation, you know, or a symptom of, like, trying to be um, self propelled or self-regulated um, in, in your own life when, you know, really the, the solution and the healing and the ultimate goal of is, is uh, submission to Allah because this way is, is, is better and it will be what will um, align you with your fitra and make you in living in this place within that dunya life in a way that you are ultimately looking for when you're saying, well, things aren't working out and I want them to be this way and I want them to be that way. You get that. You just have to give up getting it in the way that you pictured that it would be. Right, right. Yeah, because it's, you know, all the the terms that our religion defines, Islam, you know, Iman, I mean, Salima means, you know, to be surrendered or to feel safe and secure iman also means security and trust and protection you know these are some of the meanings and it's like you know because a lot of people i think when they hear these terms like you just have to submit to god and you just have to surrender they don't realize that the power or the empowerment right or the true autonomy comes from acceptance and acknowledgement that you are completely dependent on this ultimate source that's running the show we're not in charge. We're not in control. So for instance, it's like if I really want this job or I want this school or I want this woman or whatever, like I want to marry this person, right? And my ego is attached to a particular outcome or a particular process to go exactly the way I want it, when I want it, how I want it. That's There's too much of me in the way. That doesn't really allow me to go with the, the flow of whatever the universe is going to, you know, take me for that ride, right? Which is essentially Allah's way of directing and driving everything, right? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does constantly communicate and respond to us. But how are we ever going to know that if we're not paying attention? And how can we pay attention if we're not connected or have any knowledge or vision or understanding of the one we're trying to relate to? It's like, you can't, you, you're going to miss a lot of things in your life. Right. And I found that when I when my states of Iman were, let's say, lesser or suboptimal, I felt a lot of those things that you're describing, like more anxiety, more stress, more negative thinking. Um, and that can result into, you know, drastic or impulsive decisions. Right. And then in other times when I don't feel those things and I really feel like I don't get up in the morning and go, OK, what what do I got to do today? It's like, what does Allah want to do with me? That doesn't change the fact that I'm still going to get up and have breakfast with my family or go to work. But you're, you're, you're constantly 
reminding yourself and modifying your mentality, if you will, so that the automatic, you know, operative mode of your mind or your consciousness is, I am a part of this ocean, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one actually running everything. I'm just a recipient in a vehicle and an actor or a participant in this. Albeit it's limited, but I'm still, I still have to recognize that there are so many things beyond me. But when I kind of let myself let go and let God, as they say, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I pay attention and I remember God and I follow the principles of the religion, all of a sudden I get way more clarity, organization, empowerment, and autonomy, if you will, simply because I, you know, accepted the reality that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala above and beyond myself. And and I, the other point you brought up, which was really important to highlight here, is God is not out there, right? Like you said, we tend to externalize God. He's just another object out there. Like one day I want to get married. One day I want to get a car. One day I want to get closer to God out there, right? It's like, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with you wherever you go, right? He knows what you whisper to yourself. He's closer to you than Jagdur Vain. This is what you're talking about. It's a very practical moment-to-moment reality. It's not something that you only slice a pie of uh, a piece of uh, at this time and that's it. And then the rest of the time you forget about it. It's like it's like you're a kafir in between prayer or something. You know, it's like okay, when I pray, it's like this. But when between it, um, I, I don't even care or think about any of that stuff. That's not what you're uh, describing here to me. It sounds like you're saying this is your operative mode of perception of relating to yourself, to others, to the world, and all of that is coming through the relationship to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. It's, it's about making it practical and applicable. You know, it's not it's not um, making religion and Allah as this giant in the hills. You know, that is you know mysterious and removed. It's 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 the reality. It's the reality of our lives, and there's no other reason that we're here. And so we need to integrate that into what we're here for. And that doesn't mean we can't be here and living our dunya lives. We have to be. It's part of Islam. And and I think this is where people get misled in in understanding. Well, we have this will, and so you know it's it's knowing what to use that will for. Um, you know, people think. Well, I, 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 um, it's up to me to get things done. And, and yes, to a certain degree, you have to make choices and you have to have direction. And it's not to say that like you sit back and just, you know, are, are an inactive part of this and Allah just moves you and works with you. Allah says, you know, I will not change the people until they change what is within themselves. That means you need to use that willpower to do something. You use the willpower to make changes within yourself and also to sort of have notions of like, I would like to buy a house for my family one day, or I would like to, you know, have this type of life. Fine. You're, you can, it's a lot. exactly. It's understanding that like you can use that will to orient you towards a direction and make certain, um, you know, foot steps towards a certain direction but then within every step you have to be aligning yourself with the reality that you're not the ultimate decider of what what actually happens in the end and that you you have to understand that what you have determined as the end may not in essence be the best end for you so it's complicated you know it's it's somewhat of a paradox this this will 
because in, at the same time we have will, um, and yet Allah is in control of everything. And so I think people from a philosophical standpoint get stuck in not knowing how to understand how to do both of those things. Um, and I think, you know, we there has to be an area of, 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 of allowing for that paradox. And it's only a paradox because in our reality, we have a hard time making sense of that because we're used to cause and effect in linear um, dunya reality. But in the, the, the bigger uh, reality of Allah, those things actually exist at the same time. We, we have will and Allah's uh, in control of everything. Like, you know, it may make your head pop trying to sort it out, but you, you, you know, it's why, you know, things like tether your camel and trust in Allah. You have to do your part, but you have to, um, in the end, submit. Don't forget to leave us a lovely review on iTunes today. Support this podcast at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. Have a lovely day. Yeah.